Through this season of Lent, the 40 days marked off between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday, where we take a special look at the sacrifice of Christ, as a church, we have been doing a sermon series I've called The Wages of Sin. And what we have been doing is looking at some of those more dramatic stories where the wrath of God against sin has been poured out quickly and swiftly upon particular individuals. And we're going to continue to do that this morning by looking at Acts beginning in chapter 4 verse 32 and reading through chapter 5 verse 11 course that's found on the screen behind me, but if you'd like to read along in the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 1084, continuing to page 1085. Again, from the book of Acts, we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Well, the first thing that we need to do when we're looking at this text from the book of Acts is to put ourselves in this historical context. And we have to do that because we've actually just made a huge leap in history from most of the stories that we have been looking at. So far, all of the texts that we've explored in this sermon series were from the Old Testament. Things that happened literally hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. But not this story. The book of Acts is obviously in the New Testament. It's often called the fifth gospel because it was written by one of the other gospel writers, Luke. And it was written to continue to tell the story of what happened after Jesus ascended to heaven after the Holy Spirit came with power upon the church, and as the church was established and began to grow from Judea, Jerusalem throughout all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But that fact alone is part of the point of picking this particular story. You see... When thinking about a, a series on the wrath of God swiftly poured out upon those who disobeyed him or sinned greatly at different times, most of the things that we think about and most of those stories are found in the Old Testament. And because of that, throughout church history, there have been those that have kind of separated the Old Testament from the New Testament, thinking the Old Testament was this God who was angry, who was quick to judge, who rose up armies and killed people. But the God of the New Testament, well, he's a God of love and mercy and of grace that kind of says, ah, sins aren't quite that big of a deal anymore. And it's a different kind of a God. But that's not the truth. Our God is a God who does not change. Our God is a God who is always the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira shows us that even after the coming of Jesus, even after his death and resurrection from the grave, sin is still a big deal. God still abhors it, and it still will be dealt with, sometimes swiftly, and sometimes, and all times, eventually. While we'll be focusing on the, obviously, the context of, or, or the teachings of chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, I, I read verses 32 through the end of chapter 4 to kind of help set some important context for this scene. This was the start of the church. And early on, things were going very well. The gospel message was being proclaimed. The apostles filled with the Holy Spirit were giving great sermons. And many, many lives were being changed. And their numbers were growing by leaps and bounds as miracles were performed. Sure, there were certainly threats from outside of the church. The Jewish leaders that had despised Jesus and what he was doing and the attention that he was getting, they had fought and had wanted to destroy him and his message through his crucifixion. 
But now his message was continuing to be proclaimed by the apostles and they were turning their attention to them, arresting them and trying to shut them down and to stop this message. And so there certainly was an outside external threat. But that was to be expected. Jesus had warned the disciples about this. He had prepared them for the fact that while people had persecuted him, they certainly were going to be persecuting them as well. Part, though, of the growth of this community, this new church, was for sure, as this text teaches in a couple of other summary texts, especially from chapter 2, part of the reason why the church was so attractive was their care for one another. The community that was being established. They were making sure that everyone was taken care of. And, and so this was a very attractive draw to say like, hey, when you join our community, your spiritual needs are going to be fed and your physical needs are going to be fed as well. We are going to look out for one another and your needs will be met here. It was a beautiful picture and an ideal for the church that it has rarely lived up to. Now, Whenever you have a program of benevolence, of support where funds are being redistributed to certain extents, you can assume and expect that it's very likely that there will be those that take advantage of that program. And as the scene of our story is being set at the end of chapter 4, if you were going to guess that there's going to be a problem that comes up, our eyes would probably mostly be on, the, okay, who are the people that are going to take advantage of this scenario? Who are going to say that they need things to be given to them who really don't need it? That's where our attention would be expecting, but that's not where the problem arises. And that's another interesting thing about this story. It challenges our expectations. Again, when we think about the founding of the church, we expect, we understand, we assume that there will be threats from the outside, that the world will hate the message of Jesus Christ that is going forward, and that the world and Satan will try to stop it any way they can. But the threat for this doesn't come from the outside, it comes from inside the church. And the reality is that internal threats, the corruption of what takes place within the community can actually do far more destruction and damage to the church than any external threat. And again, as I just said, our expectations might be that when there is a program of benevolence where funds are being collected and distributed, that there would be a pro if there was going to be a problem, the problem would be existing in the takers, in the receivers. But again, that's not where the problem shows up. The problem shows up in some of the givers and their work and what they do. And that just leads us to a big question of this passage. Again, in looking at these stories that we've been looking at, we've struggled and had to wrestle each time with this question. Wow, isn't this really harsh? Isn't this a bit too much? And we can't help but ask that question of this text as well. 
Again, after Christ, after his redeeming sacrifice on the cross, why would God be so harsh to these two people? Ultimately, didn't they do something very good in what it sounds like giving the vast majority of funds that were collected from a property that they sold, offering it to the church? And so again, we kind of ask, what was so wrong about what they did? To us, it seems like a, a, a simple lie. So why was this such a big deal that called for such swift and radical punishment of them losing their lives? And a lot of the main answer to that lies in what we've already said. This event, like many of the other events that we've already looked at, took place at a very pivotal and important part of the history of God's dealing with his people. This was the establishment of the church. Having suffered on the cross, won the victory through his resurrection, and the Holy Spirit come on the church, now this new thing was being started. No longer did people have to go to the temple to find God, to worship him there through animal sacrifices, but the Holy Spirit was living in and among the people of God, and wherever the people of God were gathered, there he was with them and they were gathering together in this wonderful beautiful way it's a beautiful thing with a lot of growth and support but as soon as this thing is started what happens to all of that when deception is allowed to go unchecked what happens to this unity, this binding connection to these people worshiping God together if people approach this community not as they are, but wearing masks of deceit, where people pretend to be something that they are not? What happens when instead of being filled with the Spirit and guided by His commands, people that at least claim to be Christian start to be led by Satan and do his bidding instead? What happens to the testimony of the apostles when this new community that is supposed to be called out of the world to live lives of gratitude and service to a holy God is allowed to just overlook failures and lapses of sins? Are they doing anything different than the world that they were supposed to be called out of? What happens? If those things are allowed to go unchecked and undealt with, then the name of God is dishonored, and the claim that this is a better, different way of life is compromised. And the church from its foundation, begins to erode and decay. And that is why this seemingly simple lie from these two people could not be just ignored. Sin is a cancer that will destroy all things that are good. And if this cancer is allowed to just live, then it will spread and destroy the church from its very foundation. And therefore, when Ananias first and then Sapphira claimed that they were offering the whole amount of their purchase price to the church, that deception had to be dealt with quickly. And it was. 
This eternal threat could not go unchecked. And as harsh as it may seem, it was important to remind the people that God is still holy. He was not to be trifled with or approached lightly. That lying to and defiling the church is the same thing as lying to and defiling God. But that's where we also have to ask a parallel question. Not just why was this such a big deal. And I, I struggled in writing this. Which do you cover first? Why is it a big deal? Or, or what really was the sin? And that's where I also want to turn our attention. What did they do wrong? What was this great mistake that cost them their lives? This willful disobedience. And first of all, because it's dealing with the selling of this property, we are tempted to ask, well, was it because of the money? Was it because they lied about the price and didn't give everything? And the text actually goes out of its way to make it abundantly clear that that was not the issue. Peter said to Ananias, when you owned this land, it was yours. You could do with it whatever you wanted. And even after you sold it, you were under no obligation whatsoever to give this money to the church. You could give it a little bit, you could give a lot, it was yours to do with it as you will. And so, in the beginning of the church, there's no compulsion to give. There's no standard of giving that was an obligated for certain people that they had to live up to. This wasn't about the money. But instead of living into that truth... Ananias and Sapphira chose to pretend like they were giving them all of the money of the land, just like Barnabas had done. And that's where the deception starts to come in. Because they were lying. And while lying in and of itself is a problem, the lie is a bit weird. You know, when you think about lying... When you felt compelled to lie or most tempted to lie, if you're like me, oftentimes it's, it's to try to not get in trouble. You've done something wrong and now you've almost been exposed and you try to lie to get your way out of it. You know, I have no idea, mom, how the lamp broke. I was in the other room at the time. Kind of a lie. But here, that's not what's happening. So think about why Ananias and Sapphira lie. What was their motivation? They lied to Peter and the church because they were motivated by a covetous pride. They saw how the community of believers uh, responded after Barnabas had given his donation. They recognized how appreciated he was and how that elevated him within the community. And they looked at that and they thought, wouldn't it be nice if people thought of us like that? Wouldn't it be great if they were patting us on the back for being that wonderful of people, just like they did to Barnabas? If we do something similar, then we too will get praised and recognized. Now, let me be very careful with that. Because in some ways, Barnabas and others that use and give their gifts to the church, they should 
inspire us. That has to be part of the reason why his story is remembered and told and shared. He is an example of encouraging, encouraging others to do what he had done. He sets a wonderful example of obedience to others. And to this day, I hope that we experience the very same thing. I know that being a member of this church has encouraged me to be a more generous giver. Because I see the generosity that so many of you have. I don't know the numbers. I don't know the names. But I know collectively that our church gives a lot. And that has inspired and encouraged me to say, if I see the sacrifice of others, I too want to do something similar. And it's just as it is with finances, it is with gifts that are used. I appreciate so much those who serve week in and week out in our praise band and leading in music. I hear of the story of the students that love their Sunday school teachers and both of those motivate me and encourage me to try to do what I can to give my very best in the gifts that I have. And so if we are to be inspired Again, what is at the heart of the issue for Ananias and Sapphira, and where do they go wrong? And I think it's a combination of things. In wanting to be thought of and well-liked like Barnabas, they were willing to tell lies, tell lies and deceive people into thinking that they were something that they weren't. And that gets to the heart of the matter. At the very end of things, the big issue that they presented is that they were more concerned about what other people thought of them than they were about what God thought about them. And so their worship, their offering was just done for show. It was done so that they could receive the praise of other people. And they were not giving to God. They were giving to the front of the church so that the church would recognize what wonderful people they thought they were. And that is not what worship is supposed to be about. One of the first things that this text should warn us about is the fact that Christ didn't die and rise from the grave in order to now make sin not that big of a deal. As though we can just sin all that we want and be freely forgiven and it's not an issue. Even at the cross, after the cross, all sin is an affront to the holiness of God. Instead, Jesus went to the cross and gave his life so that we can have a restored relationship with God. And yes, that does mean that our sins had to be dealt with and are forgiven from by his sacrifice on the cross through the shedding of his blood. But in seeing what he did and how he paid the wages of our sin on our behalf, that should call us to walk with the Lord, to live for him and to want to serve him in all that we do. And encouraging and challenging each other to do that is what this church should be all about. 
But like Ananias and Sapphira, we can often still be pulled in that desire to impress people more than God. And so we put on a show in front of others in order that they might be impressed with who we are. Oh, how talented. Wow, how generous. How giving that person is. And then to enjoy that praise and to eat it up because we like that attention. But if the church is about our glory, about making ourselves look good, of putting on a performance in others so that we are well thought of by them, then this is for nothing. Then we're not doing anything different from the rest of the world. And in fact, it might be worse because we are trying to use God in order to elevate ourselves. And so I agree with those commentaries that suggest that this text is mainly about the dangers of spiritual deceit and pride that have to be addressed swiftly and immediately at the start of the early Christian church. And when it is addressed, what happens? Well, twice the text makes the important point that great fear came on all those that heard about these things. And that is the call for this text. When we go out into the world to serve and to live, again, are we more worried about what people think about us or what God is thinking about us? And when we gather here to worship, are we more fearful about whether we'll be judged by what we wear or how we sing or if we're here or not? Or are we more worried about entering into the very presence of a holy God who through the sacrifice of his son says, come so that you can know me. We might be able to put on masks and fake our way into impressing other people, but God knows all. He knows our heart and our motivation, and therefore we should have a healthy fear of God more than a fear of the thoughts of people. And I will confess that that is hard. As someone who stands before you every week, I think about what you think of me. And it's been hard to think about how do I address this while being honest about that. It's hard, I'm sure, for you to not be worried about the thoughts of others. And what are they going to say when your kid's misbehaving? What are they thinking when you're not listening? Or what are their opinions about whether you were here or not? We will slip in this area. But I hope it challenges us all to worry most about what God thinks of us rather than what our neighbor thinks of us. And when we thank and praise Jesus, and then we thank and praise Jesus for the fact that despite being wicked sinners, he has invited us, allowed us to walk with the Lord. Tonight in our evening service, we're going to elaborate on that thought and develop it a bit. So I encourage you to contemplate coming and joining us as we continue that thought. But for this morning, Fundamentally, the question is, as we who have been forgiven our sins, are we doing this for our own glory and the worry about what people think of us? Or are we here to worship the holy God who wants to know you and love you? Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. 
Our Father in heaven, we address you as the holy God that you are. We have sung of it, we have heard it declared in your word, and we know we do not belong in your presence. We are nothing but lowly sinners. And what we deserve from that sin is for you to quickly and swiftly remove us from your presence forever. That is what we have earned. But we praise you, O Lord, that the wrath that is worthy of our sins was poured out on your son when he hung on the cross. And when he rose from the grave victorious, not only were those sins forgiven, but he's invited us into a walk with you to be able to approach you, not in fear and trembling, but with confidence. And Lord, in light of that, I pray that it was you that we walk every day with. In a world where we are encouraged to be so concerned about what others think of us, about how they're going to judge our actions and our clothing and our look and our sounds and our attempts to use the talents that we have, oh Lord, may we push that to the side. And especially may we never try to pretend that we are more than what we are. But in your presence, we're so thankful that as we are, we can come. And that's how I pray, O oh Lord, that our worship would be true, our service would be honest, and as we go for this work, as we go from this place to work and to live, I pray that our primary fear, our primary worry would be, are we living to please you in all that we do? This I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.